Welcome to the Rosenberg Roundup, a weekly podcast providing investors with key macro and market developments, insightful data analysis, and actionable ideas that are top of mind for the Rosenberg research team in the week ahead. I'm Dylan Smith, and this is the Rosenberg Roundup. Welcome to our inaugural show. Since this is the first time you're hearing from me, introductions are in order. I'm a senior economist at Rosenberg Research, where I work under our founder and president, Dave Rosenberg, leading our team of economists covering everything from daily data releases to our regular short-form analytical output, our coverage of global themes and issues, and I direct our long-term thematic research too. One of my most important duties at the firm is to start the occasional fight with Dave relating to our calls on the economy and interest rates. Those types of debates are a genuine highlight of my week, so rest assured that the big bear is being kept accountable by the team. Later in today's show, we'll be touching base with Dave to discuss the call. I'll be interviewing him about our recently published 2024 outlook, so stay tuned for that. What else should you expect from us on the Rosenberg Roundup? Each Friday, we'll be delivering to your favorite podcast platform an update on our views on the US and global economy. We'll give you our take on where markets are headed, We'll provide commentary on the big themes of the week and the emerging items to watch in the week ahead too. We'll also dig beneath the service on a specific topic in an interview, sometimes with a member of the team, sometimes with an expert external guest. And we promise to keep it short and sharp. So with that, let's kick off with the Week in Review. And what an auspicious week it was to launch a podcast. We've seen the S&P 500 extend the all-time high it reached last Friday, and there's a definite buzz about the market. Animal spirits are soaring, you might say. The feels are good in the investment community at the moment. We couldn't help notice that the stock market rally has coincided with a big upswing in consumer confidence and sentiment, as measured, for instance, by the University of Michigan survey. Now, it's hard to tell whether higher equities create the feel-good vibes or if folks really do feel better at the whole economy and are piling into riskier assets as a result. What is clear is that inflation and interest rate fears have melted. So it appears that Main Street has become just as dovish on the Fed as Wall Street has. Given what we saw with the high Q4 GDP print and inflation continuing to fall, that means that both might be set up for a bit of a surprise in coming months as the Fed is probably going to stay more hawkish than markets currently think. And so from our end, we think the consumer is about half right. As you'll hear from Dave later, we're still pretty bearish on the outlook for 2024. So even though inflation and rates will fall, this will come against a backdrop of weakening growth going forward. We'd caution against getting caught up in the market's mood swings. For other reasons too, earnings have not been stellar to start the year, and the rally looks a little thin from a breadth perspective. Our strategizer asset allocation pool, which you'll hear plenty about in coming episodes, is at record max bearish readings. And last time it was at these levels was the beginning of 2022. Everyone knows what came next. This sets us up for a big week next week. We'll have the Fed on Wednesday and non-farm payrolls on Friday. It looks likely that the Fed will use this meeting to temper market expectations on rates. So it's going to be a hawkish one. And we've seen a raft of speeches from Fed officials pushing back on the March cut that markets have been pricing going into the year. In our next regular section, we'll spotlight one theme we focused on in our research each week. And we're opening up with a real crowd pleaser, a real salt of the earth, every man type of topic. And that's the Fed's liability management process, its monetary policy implementation framework, 
and how that affects quantitative tightening. Actually, this really does matter for markets because we've found in recent research that global central bank liquidity has re-established its old relationship with stocks. A piece we put out earlier this week showed that simple old global M2 is now an excellent predictor of stock prices, or at least has been over the last three years. Uh, a model combining M2 with interest rates explains more than two-thirds of the moves in the market since the end of COVID. And here's the kicker. M2 is turning over as global quantitative tightening continues. That's flashing a bearish signal for stocks. So for those interested in old-fashioned quantitative analysis, that's the signal. But in fact, balance sheet dynamics have become so interesting lately that there's a good chance that it will take prominence at next week's Fed meeting. We see a high possibility that the Fed announces at next week's meeting that it is planning to review its QT program with a view to eventually slowing down the pace of runoff. Now, they won't announce policy, but the announcement of a, uh, of a review itself is what would move markets. So that's what we need to watch out for. Why are they doing that? In short, there are signs that reserve levels are set to decline from the super abundant levels that we've been dealing with since, uh, since the big COVID easing to the ample level that the Fed's policy framework actually requires. Now, the Fed won't want to run a risk of an overshoot, as happened in 2019 when there was serious rate instability and res new reserves had to be created. So we know from the decline in overnight repo facility used by non-banks that we're about to enter a phase of declining reserves and that's a strong signal for the Fed to start to rethink the pace of balance sheet runoff, which has been running at roughly two times the speed we saw in 2018-2019 um, and could easily have space to slow down a bit. What does that mean for markets? Well, the first thing to note is that the QT and interest rate policy are essentially independent. So don't confuse the decisions on the balance sheet with the timing of rate cuts. That's more driven by the fundamental economy. The balance sheet questions are about implementation and liquidity conditions. But the bigger point is that this is unambiguously positive for treasuries because any slowing or announcement of reviewing the pace of QT uh, would effectively pull supply off the market uh, in future in the treasuries market. But most of the price action will take place on announcement, not when the actual implementation takes place. So that's why we are keeping a, a close eye on developments next week. For our first guest on the Rosenberg Roundup, who better than the man himself, president and founder of Rosenberg Research, Wall Street and Bay Street icon, connoisseur of all things wine and football, Dave Rosenberg. Dave, thanks for helping us kick off the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me on the call, Dylan, and uh, I'm actually blushing after that introduction. Today, we're going to be discussing our recently published 2024 Outlook. Uh, the report encompasses our take on global economics and markets, including our regional outlooks, detailed market analysis, and the themes we're watching in the year to come. But today, we're going to focus on the U.S. economy. So, Dave, let's start with the elephant in the room, or perhaps we should call it the bear in the room. We've titled the report, Gotto Arrives. So, is the recession call still alive in 2024? Well, the recession call is still alive, and, and I know that it sounds like uh, a stale and tired story, but when we talk about uh, Gado uh, arriving, and of course in the Samuel Beckett novel, uh, he never does end up arriving, uh, it's just a classic case of uh, understanding economic and financial history. And as Albert Einstein famously said, uh, interest rates are the eighth wonder of the world. We simply have not seen all the lags kick in yet. 
the policy lags. Uh, that was a, a story in 2023 in the sense that they did not show up as forcefully because of the fiscal stimulus that we saw. The fiscal stimulus comes to an end uh, this year, and we'll see what the emperor looks like disrobed because the one thing that we have not seen yet are all those monetary policy lags kicking into domestic demand. This is going to be a very challenging year for the U.S. economy. And what are you seeing in the inflation outlook and labor markets specifically? Because I think that's where all the questions are now coming to bear in in terms of what's going to drive markets in 2024. Well, you know, it's a very interesting question because the temptation is always to look at wages, nominal wages. And depending on the measure, nominal wage growth is running, say, close to 4%. And that would lead some people to say, well, that is not consistent with price stability. However, however, one of the things that has happened on the benevolent side of the inflation story has been the supply side. And not just the fact that labor force participation uh, for prime working age adults has gone back to the pre-COVID levels, but we are seeing signs of a productivity revival. Uh, I'm actually rather impressed because I would think that it's a little early for generative AI to have been kickstarting productivity, but we've had some quarters of late that have been very impressive. So we have productivity growth running at 2.5%. You could argue nominal wages because of the so-called tight labor market running at 4%. So Dylan, I'd say, what does that generate? It generates 1.5% unit labor costs. Unit labor costs are the mother's milk of inflation from the wage side. You cannot look at nominal wages alone. You have to benchmark it by productivity. So unit labor costs of 1.5% is actually, in my opinion, perfectly consistent with price stability. Okay. So we know what we think of that. What about Chairman Powell? Well, I think that, uh, you know, this is a very interesting um, question because what you see isn't always what you get. Uh, You know, you go back a couple of years ago and the Fed was filled with transitory. They blew that call and dramatically uh, over-tightened after over-easing. And it was the combination, of course, of the monetary and fiscal stillness together that gave us that whole one month of 9.1% inflation back in the summer of 2022. Uh, I think that um, the Fed is over-tightened. Uh, I found it very interesting at the December meeting at the podium that uh, that Powell actually had questioned himself as to whether or not the Fed is overshot, to which I say, yes, you have, just as you overshot in the other direction when you uh, ease policy way too aggressively in 2020, 2021, and into early 2022. Uh, how will Powell look at this? Well, uh, the bottom line, Dylan, is that he's already signaled a pause, already signaled a pause. And the one, th- one thing that we do know, and we've highlighted it in our research, is that once the Fed pauses in a tightening cycle for five months, And I remember the last rate hike was in July. And we were saying that if they missed December, which they clearly did, then the tightening cycle is over. And so that means when's the next, when's the first rate cut? And historically, the lag is 10 months from last hike to first cut, which pinpoints really May. We were never talking about March, like the markets had priced in, now gradually pricing it out. But I think how Powell sees it is um, that uh, the Fed is over-tightened. Uh, they don't want to be seen as prematurely cutting interest rates and reigniting a 1970s-style resurrection of inflation, which I think concerns are misplaced. But, you know, when you spent a good part of your uh, 
second term being compared to Arthur Burns, uh, you're going to be deliberately slow when it comes to cutting interest rates. I think that I think that the Fed is going to um, is going to be cutting rates, cutting rates aggressively. They won't be quick, uh, but they will be aggressive. So nothing here really changes the view. The bottom line is that when we talk about just price stability without talking about the recession impact. Um, that takes you to the neutral interest rate of 2.5% in nominal terms. So just consider that when you ask me about what does Powell think, Powell's got to be thinking, you know, how quickly, when it comes time to cutting interest rates, do we just get to neutral? And that's still 300 basis points away. Yeah. I mean, just to just to take stock for a second there, so we've got the consumer slowing, we've got high interest rates weighing on the economy, pulling down investment, uh, we have the inflation outlook improving significantly, led by you know a labor market that is starting to ease up from very tight levels, and the Fed starting to look towards an easing cycle starting in mid-year. I'm sure you'll forgive some of our guests who might point out that that sounds like a lot of 2023 outlooks um, that would have been given a year ago. So what would your response be to, to uh, clients who would say that? Well, the way I would um, position our view is that 2023 uh, was actually the soft landing. Uh, economists are predicting a soft landing, but you see, we've already had the soft landing, but we all know from history that soft landings are not permanent features of the landscape. What are soft landings? Soft landings are the bridge, the transition from the expansion phase to the contraction phase. And we've never in the past failed to have an NBER-defined recession with the Fed continuing to tighten policy beyond the inversion of the yield curve. The inversion of the yield curve is not both a sufficient and necessary condition, but the Fed tightening past the point of the inversion, that's generated a recession 100% of the time. But you see, I mentioned earlier, there are lags. And actually, historically, In a tightening cycle, when the Fed deliberately inverts the yield curve, and they did it this time, and if you remember, there was a time just over a year ago where Powell was saying, I'm going to have to deliver pain to households and businesses, and you could argue, well, 2023 didn't have a lot of pain, but a lot of that was because two-thirds of the growth we had was from fiscal stimulus, which actually was the big surprise for 2023. If you ask me one of the big differences, 2023 to 2024, Uh, Fiscal stimulus, which added two-thirds to GDP growth, morphs into fiscal restraint. And the Republicans are not going to try to bail out uh, Joe Biden. There's no stimulus coming uh, in um, in 2024. At the same time, the lags still have to kick in. The one thing I'll just say is this, patience. I remember when I was at Mother Merrill in 2007, people were saying the same thing. Where's this recession? And... uh, it finally came in 2008. People said the same thing in 2000. Where's the recession? Came in 2001. It's just about two years, the lag between the first rate hike and the time of the recession. And we're heading into the second year come March. So uh, I think that that'll, that'll play out. Uh, history will not just rhyme. As per Mark Twain, it will repeat itself. Well, you mentioned it there a little while ago. I think one of the big differences between 23 and 24, of course, is that we have a, a U.S. election coming up. So I guess my question for you is, I mean, are you having sleepless nights? How much do you worry about the impact of, of this potentially quite messy election on the economy? Well, you know, there's elections in like 50 countries this year. And uh, 
We just had one in Taiwan that's all of a sudden resurrected some geopolitical tensions there. Look at the Middle East. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to add, I think, to volatility. Does it keep me up at night? No. Uh, I, elections are actually a good thing because we live in a democracy. Bring it on. Uh, but I, I think that from an economic standpoint, what's going to be very important, what would turn me to be more optimistic in 2025 is if we have a split government. Uh, so what you'd like to see is not have just one party in control. Because the temptation then is to blow out the fiscal spigots at a time when uh, U.S. debt is 123% of GDP. Um, so it's not just who wins the White House, but what is the makeup in Congress? Because remember, it's in the House that the bills get passed. Or get written, they got to get passed in the Senate and the House. So it's going to be very critical to see... Uh, whether or not we're going to have one-party rule or split government. So not, not getting into the politics of who I like and who I don't, I am hoping for the checks and balances uh, to uh, to be sustained and not, not one-party rule. Okay. Well, that's the outlook. Now the important question, how do we invest around it? And before you say bonds, apart from bonds, how do you yeah, invest apart, apart from it? bonds, well, you know, naturally we're bullish on bonds. So within the stock market, you want to be bullish on uh, what I call bonds and drag, the industry proxies. So we clearly are not bullish on the stock market, and that's because we are valuation junkies at Rosenberg Research. So we respect a mean reverting series called the equity risk premium, which compares the uh, earnings yield in the stock market to the to the bond yield in the treasury market. And right now, you are not getting paid to be long the S&P 500. But what makes sense is to be in areas that uh, typically outperform in a recession, that typically benefit from declining interest rates. Uh, you know, you can throw telecom into the mix. They actually had a very good year. You can selective REITs. Uh, you throw those in. Of course, utility stocks, which cheapened up a lot last year. And look, if we're right in the, uh, we're on the precipice of seeing the yield curve uninvert or de-invert, and that should actually be beneficial for the financials, which actually rank uh, among the top in our strategizer sector recommendations in both the United States and in Canada. Uh, outside of that, uh, the U.S. dollar probably is more prone to weakness than strength, and I think that that should uh, keep gold the, keep the gold bull market intact. So that's how I think we should be viewing 2024 from an investment standpoint. Excellent. And I know we said we were U.S. focused, but is is there anything you like kind of globally? Any markets you're particularly excited about? Yeah, if you cast it out a bit wider. Oh, oh yes, and we've written a lot about uh, two areas in particular that we believe are in secular bull markets. Secular. Uh, India being one where, of course, you know, we could, there's an election coming up, which it looks like Modi's going to win. So there's an area that's got political visibility in India. Um, you know, Modi uh, is uh, obviously uh, a divisive character uh, in a political spectrum. However, his policies of driven productivity growth, I'm very impressed. Look, as an economist, I look at productivity numbers, uh, as, as you do. And we are seeing productivity-led growth in India. Inflation's coming down. Their assets are being re-rated positively. Uh, we like Japan. Japan is being re-rated for different reasons, and that's because in equity culture, corporate governance, the last leg of Upinomics is really taking hold, and it is still uh, a radically underinvested uh, local stock market. That's a secretable market. And what other country in the world is going to benefit from the ongoing trend towards French shoring, uh, which is Mexico? So, uh, you know, we wrote a report called Don't Mess Around with Jim, J-I-M, Japan, India, Mexico. So they, they are definitely on our screen from a global context. Lots to be excited about outside of developed markets. Dave, it's been great to catch up. Thanks so much for joining in. 
Uh, that was a comprehensive outline of our U.S. picture, but there's a lot we haven't touched on today for our 2024 outlook. Listeners who would like to learn more about our views on the coming year can find the detailed publication on our website at rosenbergresearch.com. And now I'm delighted to introduce what will probably become my favorite section of the pod. We're going to close out each week with a little visit to Canada Corner. We're a Toronto-based firm after all, eh? And occasionally what happens in Canada can matter for the world. And even more occasionally, vice versa. This week was a prime example of that, as the Bank of Canada was the first major developed market central bank to hold a policy meeting in 2024. Of course, they stayed on hold, no surprises there. But it was their unexpectedly hawkish messaging, especially after a very dovish December Fed meeting, that came as a bit of a surprise. Whisper it quietly, but we're increasingly convinced that Governor Tiff Macklem's primary aim is to pop the housing bubble once and for all. Housing is the major imbalance in the Canadian economy at present, and it's creating all sorts of problems throughout the system. Of course, the housing market is not the bank's direct mandate, and they can't say it explicitly if they're going after house prices. So they've couched it as a need to drive shelter costs down to get the last mile of sustainable disinflation back in place. But make no mistake, the way to guarantee that shelter costs come down Aside from reducing interest rates, given that mortgage prices, which are driven by policy rates, go directly into Canada's CPI, is to put a pin in house prices and the house price bubble. That will get down rents with a lag, and it immediately pulls down household insurance costs and other household services costs. So the two are tied. The macro data says that the BOC should be cutting already. But based on this view, they're going to hold out until they get what they want from house prices. That means they'll cut later than they would otherwise. In fact, the rest of the data says they should basically be going already. But it means that when they do cut, they're going to have to cut really hard. And that sets up a very difficult positioning problem from a timing perspective if you're looking to play the bond and FX implications. But ultimately, a year out, we see rates coming down significantly in Canada. And on that note, it's time to wrap. I'm Dylan Smith, and that was the Rosenberg Roundup. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Rosenberg Roundup. For more information on our work and to take advantage of a free 30-day trial of our research, please visit rosenbergresearch.com. Make sure to tune in to our next episode for more insightful analysis on the macro and market landscape. Rosenberg Roundup is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice, nor is it an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or derivative. Any views expressed by the participants of Rosenberg Roundup are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, beliefs, or policies of Rosenberg Research. 